Well, we are, as I said, continuing with this study of Passion Week. Um, this is one of my favorite topical studies in Scripture because it encompasses so much of Scripture. And we just see the incredible design that just demonstrates that this book is no ordinary book. The, the Bible is supernatural in its origin. <clears throat> in the first part, we were looking again at God's supernatural origin of the Bible and his complete control of history, looking at how God has foretold events that would take place in the future. And particularly last week, we were looking at the feasts of Israel, and we'll tie some of those things together this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at the, the timings and the details of Passion Week, which, again, is arguably the most important week in human history. Last week, we were looking how throughout his ministry, Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be worshipped. Jesus kept saying things like, my time is not yet come, or see that you tell no man after he'd done various miracles and so on. When the people wanted to make him king after the feeding of the 5,000, he just walks away from them. He won't allow it until one particular moment that we read about in John's Gospel when Jesus says, the hour is come. And that's where we got to and concluded last week. Next week, we'll go on and look at the accuracy and the harmony of the Gospels. And it's incredible as you just draw these narratives together, these uh, accounts that we have from four different perspectives how you just see some wonderful details and things that otherwise you might miss. Uh, so we'll look at that next week and then uh, the following week, as I said, I'm away. And then the final week of this session, we will look at the reality and the power of the resurrection. Paul speaks about the power of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about it and there's some uh, wonderful surprises and discoveries that we'll make as we get there. So we're going to continue this morning. As I said, looking at the, the timings and details of Passion Week itself. Now, just to give you a summary, if you weren't here last week or if you can't remember, uh, I'm sure you would, but anyway, uh, God is outside of time. We know that from Scripture. He's, he's the one who inhabits eternity. And he's revealed the future before it happens. as to serve as undeniable proof of his existence. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 tells us exactly that. That God is outside of time and he's told the future before it happens. You know, and in the Bible, God speaks through direct specific prophecy, but also through these types and shadows that we've been looking at. We mentioned another one this morning with Barabbas. But the details of Passion Week were recorded over a thousand years before they took place. It's just breathtaking. I mean, it's kind of looking back, we kind of, yeah, okay. But think forward. What if the Lord were to tarry? What would the world be like in a thousand years' time? Could you imagine what the world governments would be like? Would there be a one-world government, or would everything just descend into anarchy and chaos? Could you predict somebody that's going to be born and give me their location and tell me details about their life, how they're going to be, li- how they're going to live, and how they're going to die, and record a, a method of death that hasn't even yet been invented? you start to realize just quite how incredible these things are. Now, last week we were looking at the Feast of Israel, but we also see these prophecies given to us through the Messianic Psalm, Psalm that speaks specifically about Jesus. And of course, through the Old Testament prophets. So to kind of, again, give us a summary of what we were looking at, you know, specifically the, the Feast of Passover, as we were looking at last week, foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, his burial. Jesus spoke of a, a grain of wheat. Unless it falls into the ground, it abides alone. And so on. 
And then the Feast of First Fruits, clearly a model of his resurrection. And it's interesting, for many, many years following the resurrection, the Jews tried to obfuscate the, the details of First Fruits. They wouldn't accept that it was to be celebrated on the day after the Sabbath, which would always be a Sunday. They tried to break that model because they knew how perfectly it fitted with the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I didn't like that. There we go. Jesus' ministry was centered on just one week in history. Jesus, we, we saw this last week, came to do the will of his Father and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it all centered on this one week. You see, Jesus didn't want to be made known throughout that incredible three and a half years of ministry until one specific day. But on that day, and we looked at this last week, on Palm Sunday, he intentionally arranged the whole event. He sent the disciples to go and get the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. He then rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, allowing himself to be proclaimed and worshipped as king, much to the disdain of the Jewish leaders. This one day marked a hugely significant moment in the life of Israel. So what was so special about that one day? And why did Jesus say that his hour had now come? Why did Jesus allow himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, the Prince? Using Daniel's expression. On that day and only on that day. Why did Jesus rebuke the Jews also for not knowing what day that was? In fact, Luke 19, we find that Jesus pronounces national blindness on the nation of Israel because, as Luke puts it, they missed the time of their visitation. Luke recording the words that Jesus himself spoke. They missed it. They missed this one particular moment. This blindness, by the way, that has now lasted for over 1,900 years for the nation of Israel. Now, Paul makes the point in Romans 9, 10, 11, Some Jews have seen, some Jews believe, because the early church started off with Jews, but the rest were blinded, Paul tells us. One day their eyes will be open. So, what day was it? Well, we need to go back to the book of Daniel, around about 537 BC. Now, Israel's 70 years of captivity was over. It had come to an end by this point. There's around about 50,000 Jews that had decided to turn home, return home to Israel, just 50,000. a relatively small number considering how many had been taken away captive. But Daniel, aged round about 83 years old, had decided to remain in Babylon. Maybe just for health reasons or whatever else. He just decided that now this was where he was going to stay. And chapter 9 then reveals that Daniel was a little bit confused. He'd been praying and thinking through these things. You see, the captivity was over. The Jews had gone home, but Jerusalem still lay in ruins. And that broke Daniel's heart. Daniel was taken away from Jerusalem as probably around about a 14-year-old boy. And he hadn't seen it since. But he just, like Jeremiah and so many other prophets, just wept over this situation in Jerusalem. So Daniel ends up turning to the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he realizes, and you read this at the beginning of chapter 9 of Daniel, he realizes that there's a second period of 70 years of judgment that was decreed not upon the people, but upon the city itself. It didn't start at the same time, so it obviously therefore doesn't finish at the same time. If we go and look at the details of these two periods of time. The first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
occurs in 606 BC. And that marks a period of 70 years referred to as the servitude of the nation. And it terminates in 537 BC, this very period of time where Daniel knows that the people have gone home. The the decree is given by the Persian king Cyrus. But there's also a second period that began in 587 BC with the third and final siege of Jerusalem when Zedekiah was the king and finally Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon come and they destroy Jerusalem. And that marks a period of time known as the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel refers to this specifically again in January chapter 9. Well, that period of time comes to a close exactly 19 years after that return home with this decree of Darius or Darius, depending on whether you're English or American, let me choose that one, in 518 BC. It's incredible that they went home and for 19 years effectively did nothing. Now we're given details in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as to what took place during that time. And even though a Persian king had made this decree and the laws of the Medes and Persians could never be broken, still no building took place because of a few local troublemakers until God allowed. And the book of Haggai gives us details of when God finally said, okay, now you can start to rebuild. Just as an aside, and we're not going to go into the prophecies this morning, from this point, there's a prophecy given to us in the book of Ezekiel, which linked to a prophecy in the book of Leviticus. We find that jumping forward, the point where Israel regained their nation again, or regained regained. Their, their status as a national people in 1948 is the direct fulfillment of the prophecies associated with. And 19 years after that event, we come to 1967. No coincidence. All foretold in God's word is breathtaking when you start to look at the details. Unfortunately, we haven't got time to go into that this morning. But as Daniel's starting to think about all these things, he realizes that we've got this period of time for the desolation of Jerusalem to play out till its conclusion. He sets his heart to pray, and it's probably one of the most impassioned prayers in Scripture. He quotes in places almost verbatim Solomon's prayer in First Chronicles 6, 36-39. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he made that prayer, very familiar, you know, speaking about people turning to Jerusalem and praying for the place. Well, Daniel uses the same words that Solomon uses, praying for the city, for Jerusalem itself. He starts by confessing the sins of the people that have now returned, that that servitude have been completed. But then he starts interceding for the city, and it's such an impassioned prayer, just just read it and see for yourself. But partway through that prayer for Jerusalem, Daniel is interrupted, not by a, a knock on the door, but by a visitation from the angel Gabriel. We read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that Gabriel says to Daniel, Seventy-sevens are determined upon thy people. Now, we just need to clarify what we're talking about there. The word in Hebrew for sevens is this word, shabuim. And it's referring to weeks of years. The Jews have weeks of years. They have various other things. We'll talk about that in a moment. We're talking about 70 times seven years. What Gabriel is saying to Daniel is, there's a period of 490 years that are decreed upon your people. Now we know for the Jews they have a week of days, seven days of course. We see that in Genesis, Exodus and elsewhere. They also have their week of weeks. that goes from Passover up to Pentecost. We also have a week of months. That's in their religious calendar. 
And then we also have this week of years that we see a number of times used in a number of different ways in Scripture. But in this case, it's talking about a week of years. So your first year, you get the idea. So 490 years are determined upon thy people, so this is specifically for Israel, and upon thy holy city, obviously Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So we're given some specific details of what is going to occur in this period of time. Again, it's a prophecy for Israel and Jerusalem. To finish transgression, to make an end of sins. I think we'd agree that that hasn't yet completed, hasn't happened yet. Reconciliation for iniquity, well we could certainly argue that has been accomplished on the cross. But also to bring in everlasting righteousness. I think you'll agree as we look around the world, we're not quite there yet. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place or the most holy one. So some of this prophecy still has time to run. Now the first thing we're told, again verse 25, Know therefore, I love these things we get in scripture, where we get know or understand. In fact we're told here, know therefore and understand. How many people go, oh, the Bible's too confusing, it's too hard? Well then, invest a little bit of time in it. You know, we invest time in all sorts of things. And if there's some portions of Scripture you don't understand, spend a little bit of time studying. God wants us to know. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, unto Messiah the Prince, shall be a period of seven weeks, that's 49 years, and three score and two weeks, that's 434 years. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. Now this now is just a matter of history. Because a command to restore and build Jerusalem was to be given. We're to have a period of 49 years, followed by another period of 432 years. And we're told that the street and the wall were to be, re- be rebuilt during this time. Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah give us all the details that we need to know concerning this. And it really was troublous times as these building projects started to to begin. But this 483 years combined were to conclude with the coming of the Messiah. Now, the command to restore and build Jerusalem was given on the 1st of Nisan 445, that's in the Jewish calendar, 445 BC. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes Longimonus and 14th of March 445 BC. So Robert Anderson and others um, have done very detailed studies into these things. Uh, to give us these date, these details and these dates. But you look at this, we're told in the beginning of Nehemiah, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Well, we know that his ascension year was 465. We can just do the maths. you find some commentators say 444, but clearly you can just look at the maths there. The year in question is 445 BC, and that's the 20th year of his reign. And that is the year in which this command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that starts our clock ticking. Now, notice that from the prophecy we've been given, we've got this period of time of 483 years until the Messiah would come. How many days would that be? Isn't that being a little bit too precise? Well, God is precise. And bear in mind that God's reputation is based upon these things. Again, that verse I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God says there is no one else like me, no one that can tell the end from the beginning. Now, 
before we go and look at the number of days in question, I just want to highlight, and I'll leave this, this will be in the slides we've got on the website if you want to look at these details, but the Bible always seems to deal with 360 day years when it deals with prophecy. We see it regarding the flood, Daniel in Revelation, we see it, certainly regard to the servitude of the nation and desolation of Jerusalem, those periods of 70 years I mentioned, and so on. This is interesting. Why? Well, Probably because the earth used to be on a 360-day orbit. There's some really good science behind this. It's not just a, uh, a whimsical view of some. All ancient calendars were based upon 360-day years. And that's not because they couldn't figure it out. Everything changed, by the way, in, by the way, in 701 BC. All those different cultures you can see listed there all had a 360-day calendar. 360 degrees in a circle. Where did that come from? Well, seemingly from the way that the Earth's orbit used to be. There were 360 icons in the Gnostic genie, 360 gods in the theology of Greek Orpheus, one god for each day of the year, basically. Same with the Palace of Diary in Japan. There were 360 statues surrounding the whole bowl in Arabia. One of those, they all got destroyed by Muhammad. One was left, which becomes worshipped as Allah, the moon god, and so on. But it's interesting, Sir Isaac Newton made this comment. He said, All nations before the just length of the solar year was known reckoned months by the course of the moon and the years by the return of winter and summer, spring and autumn. And in making calendars for their festivals, they reckoned 30 days to a lunar month and 12 lunar months to a year, taking the nearest round numbers. Whence came the division of the ecliptic into 360 degrees. Newton quite clearly states that the reason we have 360 degrees in a circle is because the way the ancients used to calculate their calendar. Now, Newton's suggesting that it's just because they couldn't quite reconcile. I would suggest from the other information we have, it was because there was previously a, a different uh, orbit for the Earth. And it was just an interesting study as a side study. So we know what we're kind of dealing with when we're trying to work out these days then. So we've got 383 years using 360 days per year. That's the, the number we're going to calculate, as we've already said. And what happens if we do that? 483 years using... 360 days of the year. Well, we come exactly 173,880 days later to what you and I know as Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, the only day that he allows himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, the King. It's the day he said that my hour has come. And he chides Jerusalem in Israel for not knowing the day. You see, this has been prophesied for over 500 years. Surprisingly, actually, even the Magi had picked this up. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They even send a delegation when they hear of the announcement of his birth. Daniel was made chief of the Magi and seemingly passed down to them the things that he knew about what was coming. So, that gives us our starting point for Passion Week. Let me just take you back and remind you of what we looked at last week in regard to Passover. The Jews were told, back in Exodus chapter 12, to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month, the first day of the month, the month of Nisan in their calendar. The lamb had to be a perfect lamb, without blemish, without spot. On the 14th day of the first month, they were to kill the lamb in the evening. Now, Moses is very specific. The word we have there is bayan in the Hebrew in Exodus. And the word literally means between. In other words, they had a 24-hour window in which they were allowed to kill the Passover lamb. And the blood of the lamb was to be put on the doorposts and lintels, and anybody that passed under the blood into the house 
will be safe from God's judgment upon the firstborn of the land. That's the account we have in Exodus of the Passover. Now, it's incredible because when we go to Passion Week, and this is our panoramic of Passion Week, we look at the the tenth of the month. You can see up the top there. That's the the day of the triumphal entry. That's the fulfillment of that 173,880 days. Jesus was taken on the tenth day of the month, just as the Passover lambs were being taken. Jesus is then crucified on the 14th day of the month, just as the Passover lambs were. You see Jesus fulfilling in every detail these events. Now, I'm going to just try and walk you through some of these things. The Saturday, of course, was the Sabbath. Very limited travel was permitted on the Sabbath. We come to the evening, and the Jewish day begins in the evening. We go back to to Genesis, and we find the evening and the morning were the first day. So because of that, the Jews, even to this day, still count their their days beginning at sundown. So by the time it gets to typically 6 o'clock, the new day is beginning. So Jesus and the disciples set off from wherever they were, and they arrive a short while later in the evening at Bethany the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and they sit down and they celebrate an evening meal together there. And then the very next day, they ride into Jerusalem. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We're told in John 12, then six days before the Passover, sorry, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he'd raised from the dead, and there they made a, a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Now we know which day it was because we read on in verse 12, on the next day, much people that were coming to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and so on. So we know that the next day is Palm Sunday, as we refer to it in the way we count days. For the Jews, it will still be the same day from 6 o'clock on the Saturday evening all the way through to 6 o'clock the next evening. So if you look at the color, the, the slightly orangey color there, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and then the next day is the triumphal entry. We're told six days before the Passover. Now, if we try and do the maths and work this out, it seems that we've got a problem because the Passover itself was on the 14th. Always is for the Jews, always celebrated on the 14th. But we seem to not get to the right place. But if we try and put that all back a day... It causes all sorts of other problems and things. Other, other things don't fit. So how do we understand that? Well, actually, it's not as big a problem as it may first appear. Because Luke tells us something very interesting. He says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Notice that Luke refers to the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the Passover. And notice what he says in Luke chapter 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. He uses different terms to refer to different parts of this celebration. Now, it can get quite confusing because we find we've got the first day of unleavened bread. That was the first day they were to eat unleavened bread. That would be the 14th. We've got the feast of Passover itself, which also was on the 14th. But then we've got the feast of unleavened bread, which is on the 15th. And we've also got the feast of unleavened bread. See, but it's not always the same thing because that's referring now to the festival period which they counted from the 15th why well in much the same way as we think of holiday periods you think of christmas eve and it still feels like it's part of christmas but it's not really until you get to christmas that you've got your first proper day off work well the jews did the same thing because on the 14th we find it was a day of preparation 
There was certain work they were allowed to do. They were allowed to get meals ready, for example. But when they come to the 15th, no work was permitted whatsoever. You've got the Passover itself, which if you're referring to the Feast of Passover, it would be referring to the 14th. If you're referring to Passover, just as we see Luke do a moment ago, and we'll see more in a second, it's referring to the festival period, which always seems to be counted from the 15th. In John's Gospel, for example, we read this. And this has confused many people for years, and I've read all sorts of commentaries over the years that people just don't seem to join the dots together. But we read in John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hours come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended. What supper? Passover supper. So before the feast of Passover... But they've just celebrated their Passover. You see, it's just purely understanding of the terminology that's used. You see, John, Luke, and Mark all refer to the feast or the festival of unleavened bread, beginning on the 15th as the Passover. So that makes absolutely no problem with that arriving six days before the Passover in Bethany. Six days before the 15th is exactly when they arrive. And the next day is the 15th, the Passover, as they termed it. So Robert Anderson made this comment, in the same way that the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost as we know it, came to be commonly designated Pentecost, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was popularly called the Passover. That title was common to the supper and the feast, and included both. But the intelligent Jew would never confound the two, and if he spoke emphatically of the Feast of the Passover, he would thereby mark the festival to the exclusion of the supper. Again, just highlighting this is terminology thing. There is no problem with these details when we start to reconcile them properly. Okay, so we get to the triumphal entry. Jesus rides in to Jerusalem and so on and turns the tables of the money, changes over and so on. And then Mark's account is really helpful because Mark tells us that in the evening, Jesus heads back out to Bethany, the place where he was staying for that week. And there they go. The next day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem again. They get up in the morning, they head back in. They happen to see a fig tree, but it's got no figs on it. And Jesus, if you remember, curses this fig tree. They go through the day, they get to the evening, they head back out for the evening at Bethany. The next day, they come back in again. And this is when they happen to notice that the fig tree now is, Peter's the one that highlights it, Mark 11, that the fig tree's all withered up and they comment about this. But it's also interesting because this is the day where they're going in, they're looking around, the disciples are looking at the temple and so on. And Jesus just talks to them about the, the temple and they're looking at the wonderful stones and this, this incredible building. And Jesus says, you know, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples then ask the question, when will these things happen and what will be the signs of your return? And that leads on to what we typically refer to as the Olivet Discourse. It's just a little sermon that Jesus gives, in a sense, speaking about all the things that will precede his return. It's recorded for us in Matthew 24, and Luke and Mark also have their account of it. I think this is fascinating, because just before Jesus knows himself that he's about to be crucified, he seems to give the really, really important pieces of information to his disciples. And that includes all the information about his return and all the things that are going to take place, speaking of the tribulation that's coming on this world. You know, if you knew you had just a couple of days left, what would you talk to your friends about? Well, Jesus reveals things that are so vitally important for them to know and for us to know. 
We then get to the, for us, what would be the Tuesday evening. But this is the, the 13th. And this is when there's this supper. And Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with her hair. John recalls the same event back in John 12, but it seems to be there as a parenthesis referring to this event because he makes the point that Judas was outraged. And we find, the again, this is in various accounts we have it. But Judas, of course, was not that bothered about the poor and things like that. He just wanted the, the money. It's a huge sum of money, this perfume that's being poured upon Jesus' feet. But Mary, seemingly understanding maybe a little bit more than some of the others, and realizing that she's anointing Jesus' feet for burial. And of course, Jesus makes that incredible comment that the things that she's done won't be forgotten. So Judas, outraged, gets up, and he goes off, thinking that that money could have been mine. So he goes to the chief priests and says, I've had enough of this, Jesus. What, what, what do you want? Give me some money and I'll, I'll lead you to him. And of course they agree on their price, 30 pieces of silver. But what I need to realize is it's just 24 hours later that Judas comes back with that band of soldiers and men. We get to the... Well, let me just, just read this to you first. This is from John 12. Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and bear what was put therein. Okay, so the next day we get to this and this is the day of preparation. This is the day when they're getting ready for their Passover. Now, when it gets to the evening for the Jews, it becomes the 14th. It becomes the day of Passover. We read in Luke's account, Then came the day of unleavened bread. Which day? Leading up to the 14th. When the Passover must be killed. Again, that specific instruction in Exodus, they could kill the Passover between the evenings. So then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover. Notice some commentators and scholars will tell you that Jesus didn't celebrate the Passover. Clearly he did with his disciples. And the incredible thing is, because of the way the Jews' days work, Jesus could not only celebrate the Passover with his disciples, but in the same 24-hour window, become the Passover for us. Go and prepare the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where will thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters, and you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master says unto thee, Where is the guest chamber? where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. Some faith on behalf of Peter and John here. Just going up to some stranger and going, "Um, can can we use your house? Is that all right? Who are you? Jesus had arranged the whole thing. And of course, it's as they find it. Verse 12, And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, and there make ready. And they went and found, as he had said unto them, and there they made ready the Passover. And so together in that evening, they come together, they celebrate the Passover together. Jesus drinks from three of the four cups, typically they would drink from, as part of the Passover celebration. That's an interesting study as an aside. But the fourth cup Jesus doesn't drink from, and the disciples were probably a little bit surprised. Each of those cups has a significance in regard to the exodus from Egypt. 
The cup that he didn't drink from, the fourth and final cup, was the cup of taking out. And isn't it interesting that he says that that's the cup that he's going to drink from again with us in his kingdom when he's taken us out of this world. And when the hours come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him and he said unto them, with desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you that I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. Kidron means the black waters. In 2 Samuel 15, 23, we find David flee across here, escaping from Absalom. Interesting, John doesn't record Jesus' agony in the garden. Of all the things that John does record, he omits that. And I wonder whether that was just too painful a memory. Remember, John was one of those three that were with Jesus. Looking at Jerusalem around about that time, you can see that on the east side is where you've got that Kidron Valley. If we look at the, that's a view up to Jerusalem from the Garden of Gethsemane. And you've got this Kidron Valley today. You can just about see the Temple Mount there in the center. And then that that area where the arrows are pointing is roughly where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Today, the whole valley is, of course, built on, very populated, but the same place that these events took place. And we read that he came out this after the supper and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. Of course, it's in that garden that Jesus is shedding drops of blood and so on. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know, we've got these two gardens. In Eden, all was wonderful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, man sought Satan. Gethsemane, the son of man, sought God. In Eden, Adam chose to sin. In Gethsemane, the Savior chose to suffer. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered and soldiers fell before him. In Eden, Adam took of the fruit. In Gethsemane, Jesus took of the cup. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Jesus boldly revealed himself as the I Am. In Eden, Adam sought God. Sorry, in Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. Luke tells us in his account, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And he being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke gives us this account. Luke, of course, a doctor, these great drops of blood, there is a medical condition, hematidosis, and through extreme anguish or mental pressure, it can bring about blood coming out of your, your sweat glands. Not though because of the cross, not because of what the Romans were going to do to him, but because of the wrath of God that was to be poured upon him for our sin. You see, Jesus had not known sin. It wasn't the physical side of the what was about to happen that he was concerned about, so much as the spiritual aspect of suddenly having the filth, the wickedness, and the hatred of man poured upon him. 
He who knew knew no sin became sin for us. Three times Jesus said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there wasn't any other way. Jesus had to come to that place of knowing that he would be separated from his father on account of our sin so that we wouldn't have to. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the prayer that each of us should have been praying. But of course, we don't pray that prayer because we have been accepted. We've been welcomed as sons. Hebrews 12 says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Let that verse stick in your memories when you're struggling with temptation. You've not yet resisted to the point that Jesus did. You've not been tempted to that degree. Then we get to this kind of kangaroo court situation as the People arrive, ending up to 600 soldiers. Of course, Jesus announces that he's the I am. They all fall backwards. Once they pick themselves up and sort themselves out, they take Jesus away. Now, this kangaroo court refers to a sham legal proceeding of a court that denied due process rights in the name of expediency. Such rights include the right to summon witnesses, the right of cross-examination, the right not to incriminate oneself. That's exactly what they charged Jesus on. The right not to be tried on secret evidence. Well, again, that's exactly what happens here. The right to control one's own defense. The right to exclude evidence that is improbably obtained. Well, of course, they pay people to make stories up. Irrelevant or inherently inadmissible, e.g. hearsay. Well, isn't that what they say? I heard somebody say that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The right to exclude judges or jurors on the ground of partiality or conflict of interest. The right of appeal. The outcome of trial by a kangaroo court is essentially determined in advance, usually for the purpose of providing a conviction either by going through the motions or manipulated procedure or by allowing no defense at all. And of course that is a great summary of what we see because the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death but found none. Yeah? Though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. So Jesus then endures these six essentially illegal trials, three under the Jewish leadership, three under the Romans. It was illegal, by the way, to carry weapons on a feast day. That didn't seem to stop them. It was illegal to bind the accused before condemnation. They did that to Jesus. It was illegal for the judges to participate in the arrest of the accused, which again they did. No trial was supposed to be conducted at night. This was again according to Jewish, the Jews' own laws. Any verdict other than acquittal could not be pronounced on the same day. And yet they ignore all of this. And the high priest also was not allowed to tear his robes. Well, of course, that brings us up to the day of the crucifixion itself, which, as we saw and looked at last week, yes, it was on a Thursday. It's incredible how many people shoehorn these three days and three nights into the Friday or talk about a Wednesday, and nobody mentions Thursday. The Thursday is the only day that it could have taken place. And there are so many factors to do it. It's not just the three days and the three nights. You've got that six days before Passover. You've got a point that Mark makes about two days before Passover. And many other details. Not least the fact that back in Exodus, God had already laid down the model. That the Messiah, or the Lamb, would be taken on the tenth day. Kept until the fourteenth day when he'd be killed. And so on. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him 
and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Interesting name, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate, again, remember Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. He tried to find a way out. But he wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This really annoys the Jewish leadership because this title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. But then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, please don't write that, don't write the King of the Jews, but the, he said I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate, who I believe by this time was starting to piece it together, may already started to believe in Jesus at this point, makes this incredible statement. He says, what I have written, I have written. That's no casual remark. Because what Pilate had written was incredible. Because, again, we're told Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. But in the Hebrew, there's just four words that Pilate had inscribed and placed above Jesus on the cross. The first word, Yeshua, the name of Jesus. The second word, Hanatsaroi, of Nazareth. The next word, Vemelka, the king. And the final word, Ha-Yudim, of the Jews. But look at the first letter of each of those words. You have a Y, an H, a V, and an H. And if you know anything about Hebrew at all, you'll know that that is the unpronounceable name of God, the name that we would translate as Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the very name of God. Pilate said, I am leaving that name there. Above Jesus on the cross, it said, God. Again, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Just one other comment here as well that's interesting, because we're told that he bearing his cross went forth to a place called the place of a skull. John makes that point. And some people will tell us that, you know, well, it's because the whole rock face looks. We're told that this place is called Golgotha. You look at the rock face and people try to say, well, you've got two eyes in the middle and a little bit of rock that stands out like a nose. Well, yeah, that's what it looks like today. We've had 2,000 years, best part of erosion and so on. Did it look like that at the time? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think that's the reason for that. We'll come back to that in a second. Just to show you the details of this as well. That's just a a Mac looking at the um, topology of this particular mountain, Mount Moriah, as Abraham knew it as. And you can just about see there, you've got Salem at the bottom, the lower part, then the threshing floor of Orn, and that's the place that David ends up buying and using that that place to build the temple. And right at the peak... 777 meters above sea level, you've got the Yakida, the place where Abraham would have offered up Isaac almost until God intervenes. That's a, a closer view. Now, if we overlay that with a map of Israel today, you see exactly the same. The threshing floor of Orm is where the spot of the temple is. Today, of course, the Dome of the Rock is there. At the peak, you've got the place that we know as Calvary or Golgotha. And if you look in the back of your Bibles, you'll find a map and they'll have a little thing at the top saying maybe Christ's tomb, question mark, or Calvary, question mark. There is no question mark. It's the only place that fits the topology and all the maps and all the details we know of the city. And also notice that it's outside of the city walls. Leviticus 4 
said this, the skin of the bullock and all its flesh with its head, with its legs, its inwards, with its dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp into a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, he shall be burnt. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this. And in Hebrews 13 says, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest of sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. All of these details laid down over a thousand years beforehand, all being fulfilled in this one week and in these few days. The Lord God said unto the serpent, this is going back to Genesis, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, above, and upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thy dust Thou shalt eat all the days of thy life, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Very interesting prophecy that we're given back in Genesis. Notice that Satan would bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but the seed of the woman would bruise or very literally crush the head of the serpent. Now, If we think about this struggle between good and evil, between these different types of shadows we see in Scripture, it's interesting that we find probably one of the best examples, of course, with David and Goliath. Goliath clearly is a type of Satan, champion of the enemy. How did Goliath die? A stone pierced his head. All through Scripture, Jesus is referred to as a rock or a stone or that type. This stone pierces Goliath's head. Interestingly, by the way, David picks up five stones, not because he thought he might miss, but because Goliath had four other brothers. David was ready for the whole family. But it's interesting because, do you know what happened to the head of Goliath? It's a little trivia question if you're ever playing kind of Bible questions games. Well, it's really bizarre because we read in 1 Samuel, David took the head of the Philistine. Remember, David chops Goliath's head off. He's walking around with his big head. And he, so we thought he brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. That's the only comment we're given. But that's bizarre because at that time Jerusalem belonged to the Jebusites. It's not until some time later that David's men take Jerusalem and it becomes David's capital. But David takes the head of the Philistine to Jerusalem and seemingly buries it. Why would you do that? Well, I think David was being obedient to God. Because where did David put it in Jerusalem? I don't know, kind of a museum where they kind of put it on display. Seemingly David buries it. He buries it at a place called Golgotha. The place of a skull. Not just any skull, but the skull of Goliath of Garth. Golgotha. And this is incredible because we jump back to Joshua and we find that in a battle that Joshua had, it came to pass when they brought out these kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for the men of Israel, and seventh of the captains and the men of war, which were with him, come near and put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and they put their feet upon their necks. There's a declaration of their victory over them. So what do we find as we come to this incredible situation? Well, Genesis speaks of the seed of the woman bruising the head. And as Jesus is crucified, his feet are right above the place where the enemy's head symbolically was buried. See, the serpent was to bruise the heel of the 
seed, but the seed was to bruise the head of the serpent. And I believe this, in an eternal declaration of Christ's victory, his bruised feet are literally upon the head of the enemy. And so Jesus dies. We'll look more in the coming weeks at some of the details of these things. But when we get to the next day, you know, this is the high Sabbath. No work is permitted whatsoever. But it's interesting because, again, the Jews now a little bit concerned. They remember some of the things that the disciples and that Jesus himself had said, specifically. And so the Jews end up on the Feast of Unleavened Bread going back to Pilate. And we read the next day, the day that followed the preparation, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. And I can just imagine Pilate at this point just smiling, the wry smile. And they say to Pilate, Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. By the way, notice they don't say, command that the sepulchre be made sure until tomorrow, which if it was a Friday crucifixion, they would have no doubt said. They don't say that. Another argument from the silence. But Pilate says unto them, you have your watch. You know, okay, you can take a guard. We're going to talk a bit more about the guard next week. There's incredible things that come out of that. This elite band of Roman soldiers. Pilate said, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. In other words, good luck. Because I think Pilate was already beginning to realize that there was something far bigger going on here than even the Jews had any understanding of. That leads us to the regular Saturday Sabbath. Of course, the woman yet can't go to the tomb because we've just had these two Sabbaths. Mark's account speaks after the Sabbaths, plural. But the women couldn't yet go to the tomb. Another reason why the Wednesday crucifixion idea is ruled out. Because they go the very first opportunity they can. So they have to wait, not only the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th, but the 16th they have to wait before they can go and do this work of anointing the body. And then the first day of the week, as we read at the beginning this morning, they come to the tomb. And of course they find the tomb empty. As we read earlier, the first, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. They said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone of the door from the sepulchre. And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And Mark tells us, and entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And we'll talk a lot more next week about these details. We'll talk about John and Peter and their visit to the tomb and so on. But what a statement. He is risen. Anybody that's been fortunate enough to go to Israel, you can get, go, get to go into the tomb. It's literally right next to Golgotha, Calvary. And there's this sign on the door. He's not here, for he's risen. You can go to the tombs of any other great leaders of the world, any other great leaders of any religion, and they are still in their tombs. But this tomb in Jerusalem is without question empty. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as we were going through our study in the book of Genesis, that the ark comes to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. Well, you remember that when we get to the beginning, or when Moses is speaking to the children of Israel in Exodus, that they twist the calendar around, the beginning of Exodus 12. So what was the seventh month now becomes the first month. This is the anniversary in advance 
as the ark rests on the earth and effectively life begins again on the earth, as they touch down on the earth, it's the anniversary in advance that Jesus rises from the dead, bringing new life. That's no coincidence. All of this by deliberate design. And so we have these three days. You've got your first night, your first day, your second night, second day, third night, and Jesus rises on the third day. No contradiction, no difficulty. Just a little bit of simple maths. And again, all these other details fit in. And the incredible thing is what we're told by Paul when he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Passover. It had been revealed, hidden in the Passover all the time, and now Jesus had revealed it. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, the Passover. That he was buried, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it got to the evening. Jesus' body is being put into the ground just as the Feast of First Fruits, sorry, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was beginning. And that he rose again the third day, the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus became the first fruits of them that are risen, again, according to the scriptures. You know, we have three gardens. In Eden, we have the root of the problem. No pun intended with the tree, of course, but that was where it all went wrong. Gethsemane, another garden, is where the battle was won, as Jesus chooses to be obedient to his heavenly father. And then, of course, the garden tomb, another garden, where the victory, as we're celebrating today, was declared. He is risen. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the details that you have placed in here. Lord, that just allow us to see that you are in total and complete control of all of these things. Father, on this day, we rejoice in the fact that you are risen indeed and that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, but that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you too, Lord, that you've made a promise that you've gone to prepare a place for us, that you will come again and receive us to yourselves. Oh, Lord, we have such great hope because of the resurrection. Lord, for all of us who've had loved ones that have died in the faith, we know that we will see them again. Lord, we know there is going to be a day where there'll be no more crying, no more sadness, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. And there'll be a day that we will see Jesus face to face. Lord, all of this, Not only do we celebrate today, but every single day of our lives. And we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to grow together, to praise you, and to fellowship with one another. Lord, we just pray you bless us through this coming week. May we be lights that shine brightly in this world. We ask for your glory in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.